Amen. Isaiah chapter 61. I've been waiting for 60 chapters to get to this one. I was waiting for 59. Never mind. This, the, the title of this evening's consideration is Good Comma. That's C-O-M-M-A. And hopefully you'll find out just why. This is uh, Messiah speaking in this chapter. And no one can carry out the things that are given to us here except him. And, of course, Jesus applies the first section directly to himself there in Luke chapter 4. And uh, you know, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Christ is totally in accordance with the prophecies. Peter said that they were holy men stirred by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And the big news about this first few verses, especially verses 1 and 2, most of 1 and 2, is again Christ applying it to himself. His selection of reading from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, in that Jewish synagogue in Nazareth, was deliberate. And here's how deliberate it was. The Isaiah scroll, one of the largest ones, we have a copy of it uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it um, is about 25 feet long. So if you take that scroll and you rolled it from each end, just to be conservative about it, because we're not exactly sure if they would have um, rolled it from the beginning or from the end, but we know it was given to him as one book. So for him to get to the 61st chapter in front of everybody with this giant scroll would have been deliberate, would have been uh, just something very um, vi visible. You just Everybody would have been focused on him as the scripture says it was. So this uh, taking this section uh, of Isaiah and handling it the way he did is, is quite uh, profound. So let's look at the first verse, and this first verse is part of what he read to them. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound. Uh, this makes a beautiful song. There is a song on this. I don't remember at the moment who the one that sings it is, but it's a, it's a very nice song. Anyway, the Spirit of the Lord, Yahweh upon me, the will of God, the way of God, the work of God, all bundled into this life of Christ, the Holy Spirit um, that we crave so much, that we love when he, when he falls upon us, when we're filled with the Spirit, uh, when we worship in song, for example, and we, are, we get filled with the Spirit. If you've never been filled with the Spirit singing songs to Christ, you're missing out. And it needs to be on your to-do list, your short to-do list. Well, uh, again, up to the end of this chapter, Isaiah has been given the privilege of scribing the voice of, of G who we know to be Jesus. If, if I were named Jesus... Soon as I could, I'd go down to the courthouse and change that name to Walter or, or Leon, anything. But I would not. There is nobody that should have that name. Uh, if once you, especially with the knowledge of Christ, uh, my personal opinion. Now, if your name is Jesus, I'm going to call you something else. Uh, so just get used to ready for it. But anyway, uh, that name Jesus is very special. We were just singing, your name is like honey on my lips. Uh, and so it is uh, just very remarkable. Well, he, what, um, he says about himself is identical to what he has been saying. And if you must go back and research it, Isaiah 42, verses 1 and 7, Isaiah 48, verse 16, Isaiah 49, verse 9, Isaiah 50, verse 4. And as you compare those verses with what he is saying, it's just, man, this is, God is all over this. Nobody could have sat down and had this flow with, with the rhythm that it has. When you get to the Gospel of Luke, while he's in his youth, blowing the minds of the rabbis in the temple, 
That matches Isaiah 11 too. The spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh. Uh, what a privilege it is to read these verses out. Then his baptism in Luke chapter 3 verse 21 Spoken of again by Isaiah in chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. That spirit upon him. You know, John the Baptist saw the spirit descend upon him like a dove. And then, as far as his public ministry, so we're tracking it, his, his you know, about 12 years old, then his water baptism. So you have before his public ministry, as he's coming into public ministry, he's coming into view with the water baptism, and then in his public ministry, when he enters that synagogue in Nazareth and turns to Isaiah 61, it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he goes on to say, today this verse is fulfilled. And they wanted to kill him for it. They tried to. They didn't get to do it at that time. So these are... These are uh, holy things that we're in the presence of. I wonder how many people, if you ask them, what is the definition of holiness? If you ask a Christian, what, is, what does holiness mean? Well, it's just food for thought at the moment. I have the answer. I know, I know some of you, if not all of you, have the answer too. Holiness to the Lord was supposed to be this passion of the Jew into the kingdom age is supposed to be the passion of the Christian also. Peter, when he stood before the Lord, said, Depart from me, for I am a wicked man. It's because he had a contact with holiness for the first time in his life, unlike ever before. It wouldn't be the last time. Because the Lord, because Yahweh has anointed me. Now, anointing, of course, signals divine appointment with authority for the kings, for the prophets, for the priests. The anointing, as with the water baptism, unmistakable actions that announce something spiritual is going on and it is distinct. When the Jews anointed a king, like when Samuel anointed David, or when Moses anointed Aaron, it wasn't just a little dab of do you, it wasn't just a little bit of oil, it poured it on you. Psalm 133, verse 2, it is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard. The beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garment. So how much did he pour? It made it to the floor. In Messiah's case, not only is he selected and have authority, but he's distinct. There are others who were anointed, but not like him. In the context of his life, his lifestyle, the things that surrounded in the Old Testament make it very clear. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Isaiah is not talking about himself, nor does he want you to think he's talking about himself. Again, he cannot deliver what he is promising. Christ has. To preach good tidings to the poor. Now, an emphasis in the ministry of Christ, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, emphasis in his ministry was his teaching. What good are the miracles if you don't know where they come from? What good are the miracles if you do not attach them to God? So his teaching was very much pronounced. Luke 7, verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. The blind see. Lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached him. That's the punchline. He saves the punchline for John. Because John is wondering, why am I in prison? I thought you were the Messiah. I thought you were going to deliver us. And Jesus says, you go tell him what I'm quoting from Isaiah. He'll figure it out. Mark chapter 6. He went about the villages in a circuit teaching. I mean, he went around village to village. would make a double trip. Come back around again and teach again. Luke 3, verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He wasn't preaching you can be a better you. 
if you just put enough money in the offering box, like they do in some parts of this world. Anyway, even from his cross, he's still teaching. Everything he said from the cross is a sermon for us, a lesson for us. Still, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's still quoting scripture. He's still, his head is still in the game. He's teaching us. Even on your way to death, you can quote scripture to the glory of God. Powerful lessons should not be wasted on us. In spite of our shortcomings, Christ says, I see your shortcomings, love you nonetheless, and will use you if you let me. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Well, sin is a heartbreaker. Even God is heartbroken over the state of sin. And then he pointed, we pointed this out in Isaiah 15, where God lamented the downfall of the Gentile cities. And he does it again in Jeremiah 48. But we're going to take this one from Genesis 6. Yahweh was sorry that he had made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Anthropomorphic. Sorry, not in the sense I didn't see that coming, I regret it. Sorry in the sense that, so you can understand, I don't like this either. But we're going to finish this. We're going to finish not only your lifetime, but billions of others are going to finish their lifetimes too. Till I get to what I want for all eternity. And uh, it, it is, we're part of this right now. Psalm 147, verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. There's your good Samaritan. He, he, this is, again, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted on higher levels. Levels that nobody else could, could understand. So we can face death, not only for ourselves, but others, without a broken heart in the sense that there's more to this life than this life. It doesn't mean we grieve. We, we grieve all out. Grief, grief, it's the, it's the price of love. Uh, it's just um, it's the way it is. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Well, sin holds us captive. One reason why it breaks our heart and, the heart, and, and others it holds them captive too. One reason why they break our heart. Uh, only Jesus can deliver basic Christianity, Romans 7. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity through the law of sin, which is in my members. Like it flows through my veins, and I hate it so. And then he goes on to thank God that he's not judged to hell for this. Ephesians 4, verse 8, Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Uh, this leading captive, he set the prisoners free. Those, you know, those nobody could get into heaven until Christ died. They went to a righteous place in the underworld, but they could not get into heaven. Uh, and when he died, he led them into heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. And this, the foundation for Isaiah is saying this. And I suppose he knew that too, if he didn't, the Holy Spirit did, is uh, the year of Jubilee. The Jews there in Leviticus 25, verse 7, if I run out of time, it's because I'm quoting these verses to you, so now I'm going to maybe have to stop doing that. Anyway, uh, the year of Jubilee was a time of liberation every 50 years. The Jews were to set the prisoners free. Those Jews who had sold themselves into slavery, they were to be freed. Land that was sold had to return to the original owner. It was a new beginning uh, for everyone, and they really didn't honor this, and God noticed that. But uh, this uh, year of Jubilee is about emancipation, being freed from um, those things that uh, enslave us. And it was instituted on the Day of Atonement, the blast of the trumpet, when the, when the day when the Jews were to meditate on their transgressions before the Lord. It was of all the feast days, it was the solemn one. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Well, that cost him one crucifixion. 
And that's what we might want to tell uh, our Catholic friends, Roman Catholic friends. It cost one crucifixion. Anyway, uh, the divine blood emancipated us. That righteous uh, blood uh, made us makes us righteous. Matthew 27, and this is this what happened at the resurrection. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves. After his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. Now, if you were a witness of this, how could you tell? How could you preserve it? I mean, you couldn't take out, you know, your your pocket camera. And say, well, look, here's, here's one of my relatives that passed away. I got it on film. Uh, or whatever it's on now. Pixel, whatever. Uh, anyway, uh, this we have no reason to doubt these things. Isaiah said he was going to set the captives free. So he showed off some of them. He let them show up. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's where we are. Well, I don't want to leave out these words from God because I love them. They, you know, that's, we love the word of God because we see, it's, we see it's perfection. In spite of our imperfection, we can, we can be part of this. And, and that's one of the beautiful things about the word. The precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. Revelation 7.14, when speaking of the the martyred tribulation saints. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we're supposed to say these things to unbelievers and when they go, Ugh, we're supposed to tell them, yeah, your sin is worse. The stench of your sin is worse than blood. Yeah, I went to the eye doctor for a checkup and found out I have x-ray vision that is just not working right. But anyway... Uh, you know, they got these eye charts of the eyeballs. It's just gross. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you all like that stuff. I don't want to see the ligaments in there. I just want it to work. <laughs> well, anyway, the blood is, uh, you know, it's, it is not, you know, it's the cost of sin. Revelation twelve eleven. Speaking of the saints again, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Because without that, there would be no overcoming. And the word of their testimony, which is the scripture, their commitment to Christ. And they did not love their lives to the death. It's unlike a lot of people, is it not? Verse 2, now we're getting close to that good comma. To proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Three ages, three dispensations, three periods of time are all baked into that one verse. In verses 1 and 2, up to 2a, the first comma, you have the first coming of Christ. After the first comma, you have another clause, which is the great tribulation period to the second coming of Christ. And then, depending on how you grammatically want to, if you want to use a comma or a semicolon, it's up to you. But part C of verse 2 is the kingdom age. All in that one verse. Well, verse 1 is part of, part of it too, is part of the first coming. So, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, this is not a specific date, it's a period of time, a dispensation. It's the age that we live in. It corresponds to the day of salvation. Well, we get that from Isaiah 49, 8, where the same language is used. And so it gives us a heads up. When we come here, we, say, well, we look back at how he used it before. We know what he's talking about. It's the day of salvation. That is the acceptable year. What is the acceptable year? The day of salvation. When Christ came, died for sinners. For you and for me. Acceptable year. In contrast, this is very important, in contrast to the day of revenge. Vengeance. God getting them back. Executing justice. is going to happen. That's separated by that comma. To proclaim the acceptable year to the Lord, comma, rightfully placed, and the day of vengeance of our God. Comma or semicolon. However you choose. 
His ministry is an ongoing, perfected ministry. In this section, we have seven things that the Lord has done. Of course, he's done more. But, of course, the seven is a scripture way of saying this is complete. It's finished. It's done. Preach good news to the afflicted. Bind up the brokenhearted. Proclaim liberty to the captives. To free the prisoners. To proclaim the year of acceptance. That is this period of grace, of salvation. To announce the day of judgment. To comfort mourners. A lot of work in Christ. This is Christianity at work. This is all a part of what we preach and what we are doing. Had he not come to earth to... Well, let me put it this way. If he had come to earth to execute the day of vengeance, we wouldn't be here. But he did not come the first time for that. He hasn't come for vengeance yet. But it's coming it's on the calendar, his calendar. And the day of vengeance of our God. Now, that's the second clause of verse 2. Not yet happened. You know, if someone were to say, well, you know, we're in the great tribulation period. Where's Antichrist then? He's a personal guy. He's not just a group. There are people who are Antichrist. But there is a specific human being that will be demonically energized unlike ever before. Satan's rendering of the anointed demon. Well, uh, so far, there is a gap of about 2,000 years between these two comma, this, the, the, the comma and the two clauses. That's the good comma. The age of salvation, the acceptable year for the Lord. It is the good news time. In the tribulation, it's going to be there's still good news, but there's also very, very bad news. So he read from that synagogue in Nazareth to the middle of the sentence and stopped. When he goes to Nazareth, he doesn't read the, this part there in Luke chapter 4, in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of Yahweh. Where's the day of vengeance? He leaves it out. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled. If he read the vengeance part out and said, today this thing is fulfilled, that would have been it for them. But that's not what happened. He did not, uh, he knew he was preaching from Isaiah and applying it to himself. He is the author of those words in Isaiah. And uh, uh, his, his, he stopped at what we call, again, what we call a comma. It separates the two thoughts that belong to the same sentence. Placing his whole dispensation of the time we live upon a comma. Everything the church is doing is based on that comma. That's just so good that it turned out that way. The day of grace is the acceptable year of the Lord, the church age, where you don't have to be Jewish to preach the truth of God. You have to be born again. And uh, uh, we've not moved beyond this point. Not yet. That's where we have stopped. And so why did he close right there? Because the rest of the sentence would carry us into the great tribulation period. After the acceptable year of salvation comes the day of vengeance. And there's more to it than this. Because once the church is removed comes this tribulation period, this day of vengeance. And... Um, that's when the Lord will fight and defeat the nations, how it ends after seven years at the Battle of Armageddon. And that uh, Zechariah 14.3 is a good place to go to look at that. Isaiah 63, verse 4, For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. So, it's, God wants to do this, but he's got other things. He's got priorities. There, there's, there are things he has to do first that evidently are more important at the moment 
And that is the salvation of souls through the church, through the preaching of the gospel. When the church is no longer effective, when she's no longer filled with the Holy Spirit, why bother with her anymore? I think the remnant will be so small. Maybe when the rapture comes, there's not going to be as many Christians as we like to think because there won't be that many left. Maybe because the apostate church would have gained so much momentum that you just have places calling themselves churches, but they really aren't interested and they really aren't moved by what the scripture says in its entirety. They have cherry-picked the things they like. And that's pretty dangerous stuff. The Jews did that, and they, the ones that crucified Christ, they just chose the things they liked from the scriptures, and they left the other stuff behind. Uh, the fear of the Lord is a very serious thing. Anyway, as surely as he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, he will come to proclaim the day of vengeance. And we need to be very clear about this. But notice the mercy in this. <clears throat> Notice that it is a year of acceptability, of salvation, but only a day of judgment. Isn't that a little like code of God? Well, my servants have picked this up. They'll understand that I want mercy. This is what I want to, but they force my hand. They provoke me. And we've been talking about that, going through the Old Testament, how the apostates would provoke God. Tell them right out, you're provoking me. And they kept doing it. God in mercy will shorten the day of his wrath. When we see the Lord, his love and his grace, it will be greater than what we imagined. I believe when we get to heaven and God imparts to us more of who he is, it's going to be, it'll be like the Queen of Sheba. The half of it has not been told. I came to see myself and the half of it has not been told. It was an expression that, Solomon, what you have is far greater than what anybody could verbalize. Well, Jesus said straight out, a greater than Solomon is here. Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor they spin. And I say to you, a greater than Solomon. Solomon, all of his glory, was not arrayed as such as one of them. And I say to you, a greater than Solomon is here. Well... Even the prophet John could not understand the ministry of sacrifice before the ministry of sovereignty. Now, of course, God is sovereign, never gives that up. Even Christ, when, when well, he was divine, he, he, he withheld his sovereignty. It was there. And, uh, he, when, but when he came the first time, if he came as a sovereign, he would have come as a king and executed judgment on his enemies. But he did not. He withheld it, restrained himself, and he came as a savior through sacrifice. And John, again, we talked about that. So the answer to John's question, uh, are you the one or are we looking for another? The answer really is both. I am the one that's coming as a sacrifice, my first coming. I'm coming another time, my second coming, that Uh, happens after that 70th week of Daniel, then I will come as a king. And so he destroyed the works of the devil by the cross, and he will destroy the people of the devil at his return. Not gleeful information. This isn't like, yeah, Lord, I can't wait. You finally shut him up. It's not how we do it. We accept that this is going to happen. We do what we can to save those who are lined up for this to happen to them. To comfort all who mourn. Uh, So, resolving the violent earth problem that we're faced with, he heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds, verse verse 3. And in time, in time, it is all the wounds are gone. The righteous go to heaven. Verse 3, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, oil for joy, and oil... Let me reread that. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. Well, verse 10, we'll get back to this. The 
beauty here, spoken in the Hebrew, is a garland, a headdress, to adorn the head, a sign of victory and joy and delight. And the ashes tell us that fire has done its work. It's reduced it down to nothing, whatever it may be. It speaks of complete loss. And so he's saying, I'm going to give you a garland, a delight, a joy for the ruin, for the ashes. I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make good on it. And uh, he, what he doesn't say, what he could have said, and you're going to be impressed. <laughs> he could have said that because that's what's going to happen. When we get to heaven, it won't matter what we've been through here. What will matter is we're there. And, um, you know, just what if God told us how beautiful heaven was? We'd all be trying to get out of here. <laughs> That's not, that would interfere with a lot of things. Anyway, uh, as water to wine, he's going to change these sorrows into joy. His all things new are all things better. One of the great things about the letter to the Hebrews, how many times Paul says he's better. He's better. He's better than Aaron. He's better than he's better. He's better. So I'll take one of them. Hebrews 7, 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Everything he brings, when he says, you know, uh, there'll be no more sorrow in heaven. What he's leaving out is how much better it's going to be without the sorrow. How do you even communicate that? The oil of joy for mourning. These are blessed exchanges. This verse removes sorrow, matching Revelation 21, 4. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. And of course, he goes on and itemizes a few more things. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. When the prodigal came home, he was heavy and I mean, he had messed up his life. And he did not know he had taken, when he took that first step towards his father's house, his life was going to get better. Barefoot with the stench of the pig pen on him. That's how he came home. Sort of like Gomer, the wife of Hosea. Go and buy her. She's useless now. But he went and bought her. Uh, nonetheless, Hosea is a quite powerful story. And not only do men go through what Gomer went through, women do too. People go through these sinful things. It's not a gender competition. Anyway, what did the father say when the son came home? Bring out the best robe. Put a ring on his hand. And sandals. Barefoot. I probably would have said take off those ugly ones. But I think it's safe to assume that he was barefooted. But even if he wasn't, he was going to get an upgrade. Things were going to get better for that son because of the father. And so our Father in heaven commands that our garments be changed when we come to him. This is pictured for us in Zechariah chapter 3, the first five verses, where there the high priest named Joshua is refitted in front of Satan. It's a beautiful section of the Old Testament. That they may be called trees of righteousness. Well, that alludes to to planting, to a forest. Uh, It reverses the imagery back in chapter 1 where the the trees that they were interested in were connected with idolatry and sin. The word tree here in the Hebrew could be translated oaks or posts or pillars, matching Revelation chapter 3. And again, this is just how the language, the language is not so important as the meanings. (laughs) You know, the words... Words don't create the ideas. The ideas create the words. And when you get someone who tries to use the word to create the, uh, the, reverse that, right? use the idea to create whatever it is I was saying, <laughs> when you get someone who's not listening to the idea of what the words are communicating, you're going to have heresy. They're twisting the words. But when you just read them for what they say, Revelation, Chapter 3, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. There's that word, that the meaning. It says in Greek, but the meaning is the same. In the temple of my God. Now, he's not going to turn us into a column, a pillar structure, like, oh, I'm stuck. But the language is beautiful. 
right there on the surface, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him a new name. The, I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So he makes that distinction between the new Jerusalem on earth versus the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. Because the new Jerusalem on earth is run by people who are outside of a glorified body. They can still die. But the ones that come down, the saints, the church, the saints of the Old Testament, we come down in the new Jerusalem, we're in our glorified bodies. Which we're never going to die again and be susceptible to elements. Well, um, we're, or we're so coming back to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, that they will be called trees or pillars of righteousness. Strong, impressive, useful, fruitful, because we have work to do when we come back. That idea about we're up on a cloud playing a harp is, is just, I don't want to harp on it, but it's dumb. Anyway, uh, in Jeremiah 23, the Messiah directly says, Yahweh to Sidkenu, Yahweh to Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. And then later in Jeremiah, in chapter 23, he says, Jerusalem is the Lord's righteousness. And here we are the Lord's righteousness. Just like he said, I am the light of the world. And then he says to the church, you're the light of the world. So he said on the hill, can't be hidden. Let your light shine before men that your father in heaven might be glorified. Basic Christianity is beautiful Christianity. It doesn't need to be embellished. It doesn't need to be modified. And if it's boring to you, that's your problem. You should take it to God to get it fixed. Uh, but anyway, uh, the planting of the Lord that they may be glorified. Well, when we plant something, we envision its contribution to the landscape. When you plant a tree or something, you say, well, it's going to look nice over here. You know, God has done that. He's thought it through. It's a personal labor. When you plant something, your hands are on it. You have contact with it. You're touching it. And God's hands will handle us in a very personal and precious way. Verse 4, And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall rise up from the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Well, now that I've spent time on the good comma, we're going to kind of move faster. That's the plan. So uh, all this here in verse 4 about the rebuilding the cities. This is in the kingdom age. This is by people who were born in iniquity. But changed. Made righteous. Now the spirit of the Lord is upon them. Ezekiel says this. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord... On the day that I cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. What ruins? Well, Armageddon. The great tribulation period. Gaza, Hebron, Nazareth, no longer unsafe, unpleasant cities that they are now. They're, these are the Arab strongholds in the promised land, and those are not places that are just very nice to be in. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy in, in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem quarter, most. There's the Muslim quarter, the Christian, just, the Jewish quarter is just the nicest. And there's some good pizza shops there also. But anyway, uh, it's, it's, God's going to take back the land, and Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And what Antichrist and Islam have ruined in God's land, with God's people, uh, God's people will restore it. All of Satan's tunnels destroyed. Never a threat again. And those giant, hideous windmills. I don't know if Israel has any of them, but I hope they're removed from the earth. They, just, they look like a Picasso on the landscape. I don't know. I just what I think of when I see those. You know what I'm those windmills? The new energy, like 300 feet tall, killing birds and stuff. Anyway, back to this. Today, we are living now... In a parenthesis, between Daniel's 69th week, where Messiah is cut off, and the 70th week, where starts the tribulation period, that last seven years. And between the beginning of the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. That's where we are, right there. Kind of like just hovering between 
the first and second coming of Christ. And I don't know if we're mindful of how profound this is laid out for us in Scripture. Verse 5, see someone, what are you doing today? I'm going to be between the first and second coming of Christ. It's <laughs> a good answer, right? Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dresses. Now, they're not, they're, good, they're willfully, the Gentiles are going to love the Jews. It could be a reversal of what we're seeing. There'll be no more, you know, the Jewish haters club will be destroyed. God's going to purge the earth of that stuff. Israel will be so adored and revered at the same time by other people who have been living in the, and born in the, in the kingdom age, that uh, they're going to, you know, I, I want to go to Israel for a year and serve, you know, like a kibbutz kind of a, an arrangement. N- not a kaput, a kibbutz. <laughs> so, yeah. anyway, also, never again will the Jew think that Yahweh is exclusively theirs. There's not going to be this competition. Well, I'm a Messianic Jew. There's not going to be any of that. Uh, well, I'm a Gentile that figured it out. You should have got it. It's not going to happen. No more competition like that. Verse 6, But you shall be named the priest of Yahweh. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. There's not no hostility in any of this. Nothing forced. It's all voluntary and delightful. And a priest, so you, a, a prophet and priest, it's like... Two lanes of a highway. The priests are with their communication upward to God. God, your people repent of their sin. The priest brings the offering, going up. A wave offering before the Lord. The prophet, thus says the Lord. This is coming down from the Lord. So you've got one going up with prayers and supplications. You've got the other coming down with a word from the Lord. It's not always a bad word. And when it is, it's because of the people. So in Isaiah's day, they're reading this, and there were many folks that were apostate. And Isaiah's saying, yeah, well, the day's coming, we're going to have your type here. And your type is your fault. It's not like you were born type apostate. What's your blood type? Type apostate. Anyway, uh, the, the surviving Jews, they will be priests in the new temple, the temple of Christ. Uh, and uh, the, from the Christians... Uh, uh, will come, or from... See, I, I'm not sure how, it's, you know, God's going to class like Moses. He's sort of not a Jew. He's a, sort of a Christian now. You know, how's that all going to work? We don't have those details. But what we do have right now is there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but all in Christ. I have to say Scythian because it's fun to say that. But uh, Or barbarian, that's another uh, close... Anyway... Coming back to this, uh, so think in terms of billions of people. There will be no abortions. Uh, death will be non-existent. You know, be like one funeral home, and he's going to be like the Maytag guy. It's like, man, when's somebody going to die? <laughs> they don't do it unless they do a crime. So, and we'll get to that later in Isaiah. Uh, you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles in their Glory you shall boast. And so that language takes away the idea that they've conquered the Gentiles and now are eating what they've pillaged and plundered from them. That's not what's happening. This is all mutual. Uh, uh, The Christians belong to another priesthood. There will be the priesthood in the king in, in Jerusalem, and there will be one independent of the Levitical priesthood, but not independent of the same God uh, and that's what, when Peter said, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is Peter the fisherman, talking like he's on the same level with Paul, because he is. He might, you know, if, if Peter wrote that with his hand, which he probably didn't, he probably um, dictated the letter, uh, it, you know, it would be grammatically sloppy compared to Paul. But its meaning would be equal. Quite powerful. Uh, You've got to love that about God. Anyway, um, verse 7, Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, 
They shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Double land, too. The borders of Israel are going to expand. The message of verse 7 is God is going to give ample compensation. They'll be satisfied, in other words. Nobody's going to say, what? After all that, this is all I get. It won't be any of that. And not out of fear, out of just, man, I can't believe this. This is incredible. Thank you. Verse 8, for I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offerings. I will direct their work in truth and will make them an everlasting covenant. Well, the very thing that corrupt authorities chase out of their sight is justice. But God says it's going to rain. Isaiah 1 verse 3, Your princes are rebellious, companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. That's talking about that last sentence. It's talking about their heart. They, have no, they don't empathize with anyone's grief and sorrow. They don't take their uh, abilities, their platform, to help some. If someone's lying down, they'll go through their pockets for something, but they're not going to help them up. And, and that's the kind of savage characters were in government then and through the ages. And just wasn't then to, to this day. Uh, you know, we have, we have people in government that say, I don't mind burning this country down long as I get to be ruler over the ashes. That's how they think. Like, where does that come from? The fires of hell. So, you, you know, you, you really think you're going to rule the ashes? There were kings like that in, in the book of Kings. God says, I hate robbery for burnt offerings. Robbery is always a violent word. Thieves can steal without hurting you physically, but a robbery is, they're, they're going to take it from you, right from out of your hand. Like those, those monkeys in Japan that run around the street like hordes of gangs. They even have leather jackets now. <laughs> See, this is why the Second Amendment would not allow that. <laughs> There'd be a bunch of shot-up monkeys <laughs> no monkey business in this town. Where'd they go? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what's wrong with those people? They used to make the best swords in the world. Anyway, okay, maybe you don't know about these monkeys. You, I mean, they steal your phone. They just, they do stuff. They're vandals. They're robbers. And people are just, oh, it's so cute. That's why I'm not going there. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> all right, back to, I will direct their work in truth. Um, well, something Satan can never do. And, uh, and we'll make with them an everlasting covenant. Well, we know that's the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 24. Jesus, the mediator of, a, of the new covenant. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. This is, you know, you ever meet those Christians? They're so into the Old Testament, they don't know how to be New Testament Christians. Because they never thought about this verse. He has made, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, who has also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. We're not ministers of the old covenant. The new one. And in the old covenant is enough of the new to keep using it. Just, of course, with better understanding. Oh, look at that. We're almost done. I, I got a lot more time. I don't know what to do with myself. Verse 9. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom Yahweh has blessed. I mean, this is going to be so much unlike what we have right now. Where it says they, they have, this tells us they have descendants. Procreation continues with those who survive the tribulation to the point of a thousand years when you have those who've been born and have no knowledge, personal knowledge, of the great tribulation period. And out of that number will come a, a rebellion. And they will be swiftly dealt with. And then we get on with the new heavens and the new earth. But we have enough information up to then. Uh, the glorified saints, again, no longer susceptible to death 
or decay. The second resurrection will not destroy us. Jesus said, you'll be like the angels. There'll be no need to procreate. You're glorified now. Uh, I'm using uh, those who are in the flesh to populate eternity. When you get to eternity, you're one of those people in the population that I have drawn out of earth, a hateful environment, and in that hateful environment, you loved me still. Then the next time you say, I hate this life, which some of you youngins haven't gotten there yet at probably, but you will. <laughs> Just remember that the Lord, you know, your love is for the Lord is stronger than your disdain for this life. And uh, so anyway, Matthew 22, verse 30, uh, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Uh, so, anyway, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks herself with ornaments. As a bride adorns herself with jewels. Verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its bud. As the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Well, again, not fulfilled, but coming. The speaker, Israel is being personified as thankful for what the Lord, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. That's He's personifying Israel, which is saying what the people are now saying in Israel, which they weren't doing under his ministry, much of his ministry. They weren't, in the days of Ahaz and, and uh, Manasseh, they weren't praising God. So the entire nation will recognize that Jesus is more than Messiah, he's the Christ. He's Gentiles too. That's the big distinction there. Uh, some of the commentators, you know, they, well, is it, some say it's Isaiah speaking, some say it's um, Messiah speaking, and, and some say it's Zion. But I'm the right one. I got it right. It's Isaiah personifying Israel. And there's some others that agree with me. I let them. Anyway, clothed in righteousness in verse 10, we close with this verse from Ephesians chapter 4. That you put on the new man which was created according to God. Returning back to Genesis 1.26. Created in his own image according to his own likeness. That you put on the new man which was created according to God. In true righteousness and holiness. Well if you never get there. You must never give up. Let's pray. Our Father. Exciting. Exciting teachings from your word. Uh, now to go out and try to make it count to your glory. That's what it is about. And we thank you for the privilege of letting us be part of your processes. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.